Maybe that is the one real division between men. Woodmen and desert men. Kurban Said. Welcome to Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank everyone who listened to the surprise bonus episode last week. Um, yeah, for those that don't know, that was the review of the movie 10,000 B.C., um, I, uh, decided to make that kind of last minute. Um, I had, oh, I was going to make it into a, I was always going to turn it into an episode, but I hadn't planned on doing it quite that soon. I wanted to kind of cover a little bit more, but I had some free time in the run-up to the 4th of July weekend here in the U.S., and I decided, what the hell, go ahead and get started, uh, and give some, you know, Give another week full of content instead of just having a, a dead weekend. So, uh, but I do appreciate everyone watching, or I'm sorry, listening to that. <clears throat> this week, though, we're gonna start our overview of human human history at 10,000 BC in Asia. This is, of course, following the kind of the route our ancestors took once they left Africa. Of course, we've already kind of gone over the broad strokes in that uh, that initial leaving of Africa period. Uh, but this is going to be kind of an overview of where things stand uh, in Asia as of 10,000 BC. And I've decided to kind of do this in a couple of ways because. Here, there's divergence and what places to cover when uh, make a little bit more sense than others. Uh, but that being said, I've decided to do Arabia first, which will be in this episode. Uh, then we're going to move up into Mesopotamia. And then from there, I've decided we'll then shift to um, the further east and go into India, uh, and then we will go into China, uh, or what is today China, and then north through there to uh, Siberia, the, the steppe, and then we'll go back into Europe. Then we will travel to the Americas, and then finally we will end up with the Austronesians. That's kind of that's my plan right now. Now that is subject to change depending on, you know, research sources. Uh, there may be some episodes where I don't really need to go over too much in depth for some of these locations, but uh, I do want to cover them with as much depth as possible. Uh, also, uh, I do want to briefly go over some stuff from the last episode. Um, I didn't really go over the potential language spoken by the Kadan culture. It is possible that this is kind of the homeland or, or high mod of Proto-Afro-Asiatic, uh, or that it is the homeland of the pre or Proto-Proto-Proto <laughs> the pre or Proto-Proto-Afro-Asiatic speakers. Um, I believe that the Kadan were speaking some type of dialect related to that initial language. Uh, however, they are about to fall apart when we were talking about them. 
and this is going to lead them open to change. So it's really, it's really too hard to say for sure. And again, there is some some linguists are very much of the opinion that the Proto-Afroasiatic language is more likely to have come up along the Red Sea coast, either around the uh, Horn of Africa or even across into the Arabian Peninsula, and then that came in later. And the people living in uh, what is now Egypt adopted it then, uh, or at a later date. So it's hard to say, and I guess in the long run, kind of doesn't matter. But um, and I guess there's always the possibility that they are that they were speaking, I guess, the same proto language, and then it diverged, and then when they remet, they kind of reconnected those two divergent uh, branches of a proto-Afro-Asiatic family. Uh, it's kind of hard to say, very kind of uh, speculative uh, on my part and others as well, but um, that said though, we should go ahead and start with the, I guess, the first part of Asia at 10,000 BC. So, this is, of course, going to begin in southwestern Asia, or the Middle East, as most uh, Westerners know it, or at least most Anglo speakers, Anglo-American speakers. Um, now, when Homo sapiens left Africa successfully for the first time, we probably did so via a land bridge between the Horn of Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, uh, during a period of low sea level. It's possible we even just left on very rudimentary um, log rafts or um, perhaps a log kind of uh, teepee, like a burnt out singular log. Um, now it's another possibility that the route we traveled was via the Sinai Peninsula uh, or maybe both and then we met up in other places later. Whatever the case, early humans would move back and forth between Africa and Asia as needed via both routes for, well, basically all of history. Uh, the uh, Arabia that they're entering into initially, though, was not the same Arabia that we would think of today. Uh, much like the Sahara, it was greener. And that makes sense as they're kind of on a similar range of latitude. And like the Sahara, it becomes green on a cycle as well, though not quite as regular from my understanding. At least that's the speculation. Um, I read an article in the Smithsonian Magazine from 2017, and that's by Jason Daly. And he cites that there were as many as 46 lakes in what is now the Nafud Desert region of the Pen uh, Arabian Peninsula alone. Uh, and now this is a huge area. It's 140, uh, 104 square kilometers, which is 40,000 square miles, and it, it basically covers 30% of the peninsula. And this isn't counting the other parts of the peninsula that would have their own rivers and lakes. Of course, if you go to there today, there are no real sizable lakes or rivers and almost no rainfall. Uh, what rainfall does happen, uh, or when it happens, it accumulates 
in the wadis formed during prior green periods. Um, and for those that don't know, wadi is an Arabic word for a valley or ravine and channel uh, that is dry like 99% of the time. Uh, and then, of course, during those brief periods of rainfall, they just, they're very vital to life in the region. Now, due to the geographic characteristics of modern world and politics in the region as a whole, uh, excavating the area for archaeological purposes has proven challenging. Um, and from my understanding, as far as I can see, we've never found human remains in the area from that time frame. Uh, we have found tools and a lot of things like that that are very similar to what is found in East Africa around the same time frame. And that's kind of caused the belief that this was the main jumping off point for our expansion out of Africa. So essentially our, our ancestors crossed into Arabia and worked through the mountains in the west or around them to the south along the coast and then north to the Nafud Lake region and then northeast to the Euphrates and Tigris rivers and from there followed the rivers or went further east. As for the groups in the region at 10,000 BC, they were probably just beginning to feel the effects of the slow start of the desert desertification in the peninsula beginning again. Nothing massive, at least at this point, but the process is beginning. Uh, not that this is affecting a large number of people. It's hard to guess, and I haven't brought it up for a little while, but the total estimated human population at, at this point, at around 10,000 BCE, is around a million worldwide. And if we go off of anthropological studies of modern hunter-gatherers, uh, there would not be a single group larger than 150 people at maximum. At maximum, excuse me. And most would probably be between 20 and 50 large uh, at any given time. This means that there were always, uh, or there was anywhere between 50,000 to about 6,700 groups. Um, 60, yeah, 6,700, uh, 6, yeah. Uh, this number is, of course, uh, fluctuating in winter or maybe hard times in a specific region. Uh, you know, related groups would come together fairly regularly to pull resources and skills to survive. It, you know, this is a good time to reaffirm or affirm familial ties, uh, you know, and find partners for your children you know, that, that they're slightly less related to, I guess. Uh, and then they would split up again if they got too large or once the season changed and survival became a little bit easier. Uh, people who are in Arabia were still fully nomadic, and they're going to remain so that way even after the introduction of domesticated animals into the region. Um, uh, that being said, my guess is that during the warmer summer months, 
you know, they would stick to the hills and mountains of the western edge of the peninsula, you know, where today you see a lot of the permanent settlements in the region. And then they would uh, be able to hunt, gather in that area while also being near, like, runoff from mountains, you know, from melting snows, anything like that. Then during the, the winter months, they would head in uh, one of you know, three directions. Uh, to the northwest and the Levantine Corridor and the Sinai Peninsula, uh, either to the central north of the peninsula and the Nafud Lakes, uh, or what remained of them, you know, depending on how fast desert, uh, desert uh, how fast desertification was happening, and, or they would go to the south and east somewhere along the coast, places today like uh, Yemen, Oman, or uh, maybe the UAE, something like that. <clears throat> uh, sadly, um, until more excavation is kind of done of this area, um, we're not going to be able to know too much. It's just going to be shrouded in you know your standard myth and mystery, you know, of these kind of places. <clears throat> Next, we need to focus on a major kernel of human migration civilization, and that is Mesopotamia. And uh, I, I do want to kind of jump ahead a little bit in time, at least when it comes to linguistics, or linguistically. Um, for those that don't know, uh, meso can mean middle or halfway, between, something like that. Potamos means river in ancient Greek, and putting those together, uh, of course, with the plural ending, you get Mesopotamia, which is translated as land between rivers. Uh, the land is inferred in that in that kind of uh, phrase. Uh, I wouldn't know how you would measure kind of a halfway point in the middle of rivers without some type of landmass of of some sort. <clears throat> and this is probably a direct translation of the Aramaic words or name of the region which is uh, Beth Narain, which is itself a direct translation of the earlier Akkadian language Beritum or Berit Narim, uh, which uh, now how much of the land between the two rivers, which of course are the Tigris and Euphrates, this describes has changed over time and depending on who is referring to the region. As for the name of the rivers uh, themselves, Tigris comes from us uh, comes to us directly from the ancient Greek uh, Tigris, uh, and their name for the river is probably derived directly from the old Persian Tigra, which is a pronunciation that they took from the Elamite language, whose name is a corrupted version of either the Akkadian name Idiklat or the oldest known name for the river, which is from the Sumerian Edigna or Edigina. Uh, the Akkadians adopted the Sumerian uh, script, but pronounced them differently. Um, I think that they adopted the name, or the Elamites adopted the name from the Sumerians directly. Uh, just due to the time frame, of their emergence and kind of location. 
as for the Euphrates, its origin is a little bit less obvious. The Greeks got their pronunciation, again, from the Old Persian, Ufratu, which came from the Elamite, uh, and I'm going to butcher this, Uipratuis, uh, uh, and the Sumerian name for the river was Baranuna, and the Akkadian was Puratu. Uh, yes, Puratu, I believe is, is the direct pronunciation. So there isn't much of in common except the kind of that Ra sound uh, in Paratius. Uh, Burana, or uh, sorry, Buranunu, or Burunanu, uh, depending on again the syllable emphasis is a little odd, uh, and we're not a hundred percent sure on the pronunciation. And the Akkadian is Puratu, uh, so the Ra is the only sound that's kind of you know either in that second or third syllable, depending on the language. And not to even get further ahead of all of this. Um, but there is a thought that the name for the Euphrates is actually came from a smaller regional language that's kind of been lost to time due to them not having had it written down or being referred to directly by any um, sources in the region before they die out. Um, toponyms, which is the linguistic term for like a place name, are generally speaking the, the most conservative uh, words in any languages and those are kind of shared far longer than anything else like people moving into a region uh, they will use another people's name to kind of refer to things there are like rivers in England that they have no idea the origin of them uh, I think ooze is one um, no one knows where that word came from and so it's very possible that that was kind of like the Neolithic people living there, what they referred to the river, and then people moving in as they kind of learned, you know, about the region from the people already living there. Um, but basically that that was the Ooze River, and that's always what it's been called, so that's what it's continued to be called. So, yes, toponyms can last for a very long time. Mm. So, uh, again, I'm going off a little bit of tangent, and I'm doing this mainly because I do kind of want to start getting into this a little bit more historical times, but obviously I do want to fill in this background stuff. And I I've kind of, was kind of debating doing this for some of the things in Africa, but there was a lot more that we could kind of go into, at least for the southern parts, the, the, the Khoi and the San peoples, just because, you know, we really won't be focusing on them in until much later um, when they are kind of interacting with the expansion of like pastoralist and agriculturalist in the region and that's going to take a little while that's not going to be towards kind of the end of or I guess kind of the middle part of the, the Iron Age so I, I did want to kind of you know focus a little bit on kind of the proto aspects of those regions because they're so you know they're not as well understood but I probably will kind of break down you know the names of those regions once we get to kind of like a more substantiated um, I guess list of peoples in the area uh, but 
I figured now is a good time to kind of just set the stage for an, a very important area, at least in the early parts of human civilization. Um, but, so, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, uh, Mesopotamia means different things to different people. Uh, for the purposes of this podcast, uh, I'm going to define Mesopotamia as the region west and south of the Zagros Mountains, south and east of the Taurus Mountains and the Armenian Highlands, east of the Orontes River, and of course the Mediterranean in that region, and north and east of what is the modern Syrian desert. And of course to the northwest of, you know, of the Persian Gulf. Uh, which I need to point out uh, covered more land than it does today. Uh, for example, the Iraqi city of Basra uh, would be completely covered by the ocean if the Gulf had the same coverage uh, today as it did back then. And, you know, these rivers, they do not follow the same course. Uh, they're not like the Nile. They've changed much more re regularly, at least more recently. Uh, so some of these cities, that's going to affect, um, you know, where people are living. Um, some sites are going to be abandoned, reoccupied because of just the change of the river flow. And we'll get into all that later. Um, I, kn and I know this sounds obvious, but I do want to get into some terminology I need to, to make. Um, and this is going to, again, sound very obvious, so it might be a little stupid to say, but Upper Mesopotamia is in the north, and Lower Mesopotamia is in the south. Again, I know that sounds obvious, but when referring to rivers and river systems, the term upper refers to the area where the river sources kind of merge and begin and start the flow of the rivers, and these are also known as headwaters. And lower refers to the area where the river begins to empty into the ocean or another water system. As we cover other river systems, that's going to mean different things. Uh, of course, upper could refer to a source in the west, and lower would then go to somewhere in the east, or vice versa. And there may even be cases of rivers running uh, south to north. Uh, there is a very important one in what is now Egypt. So, uh, again, it makes sense, upper and lower, very perfectly for... Uh, the Mesopotamian region, but uh, that's not always going to be the case. And I figured I'd just go ahead and get that out of the way. Um, and I probably should have done that when we were talking about the Nile. I get those backwards a lot, at least when I'm just going off, you know, going directly from my hip. So um, I'm probably going to do it again. But uh, that's just a point of terminology I just want to make now. Um, so, and I, I promise I'll stop diverging and we'll actually get to a little bit more coverage here. Uh, if not in this episode, definitely the next. So, um, another factor that I do need to get into is that this is uh, this is a much different area uh, at 10,000 BCE than it is today. Uh, it's much more biologically diverse. Uh, it has marshes, which still do exist, but they're much smaller. Uh, it has you know much larger forests and green and verdant and expansive grasslands and part of that's going to be going to change just due to natural climate shifts and also of course human 
uh, interference, although I would argue that in some cases we've actually preserved certain aspects of them a little bit longer than they would last normally. Um, but it's again, it's give and take for specific needs and purposes in different regions. Um, another uh, factor to keep in mind, there are a lot more animals there, or, you know, different varieties of animals. I think there are still lions in this region for quite some time, um, which sounds, you know, surprising, I think, to most people. Um, but yeah, like marshes in the south, they'd be home to like a specific type of lion. I think tigers in the area as well. Uh, so there are some still mega fauna, like predator, predatory megafauna in the area. Um, of course, they're eventually going to go away completely just due to their interference with human lives. But that is something to keep in mind. <clears throat> so, yes, Mesopotamia, that is the beginning of a complicated getting to a very complicated region uh, at uh, actually later than 10,000 BCE but then again uh, that's just me kind of jumping ahead because I do want to kind of get some terminology out of the way and just explain why we call things the way we call them. Um, I do want to get into some actual history instead of just a lot of rampant speculation. Ah, So let's talk about uh, cultures, or at least proto-cultures. Uh, now, I know I covered the Kadan in the last episode for Northern Africa. Uh, there are the beginnings of uh, kind of a, a collection of different uh, cultures or groups in this region, uh, specifically Upper Mesopotamia, and uh, going west towards the Mediterranean coast, uh, what is also known as the Levant or the Levantine Corridor, depending on your terminology. Uh, you're going to start seeing a bunch of sites that are uh, kind of semi-permanent or, you know, um, you're going to see more like more settlements, uh, like, you know, hard settlements that we're going to basically people in this region are starting to shift from just pure nomadic lifestyles. They're going to uh, basically have a range of specific sites that they kind of they take over for themselves. But at this point in time, there is a group or again, the beginnings of a protoculture called Pre-Pottery Neolithic A or PPNA. Um this is very old terminology, and at the time, it was a you know it was a decent term. However, um, as we'll see later, uh, it's not a very good term now. It's not accurate. Um, pottery exists in the world, uh, much further away from you know from where we are now, uh, out in East Asia and the steppe. There is pottery, and in Europe even there is uh, there is there is at least substance made of the same things as you'll think of when you think of pottery but they are not using them for a um, practical application uh, they're for religious statues like little small religious statues whereas in East Asia they are being used to make pots to cook food uh, so it's not pre-pottery it's it's pre-pottery in the Middle East 
or you know Southwest Asia, but humans are not uh, pre-potter anymore. So it's it's a very old term. It's a little outdated, but it's just become so used. It it's not been replaced. And it is a very general blanket term that actually describes a couple of cultures that I'm going to start to go over now. Uh, and one of those is the Natufian culture. Uh, this has actually been around for a little while. And in fact, uh, we're getting ready to get to the point where this culture is about to uh, break down and either evolve or just die out. Uh, they have about 500 or so years, give or take, before they kind of disappear or change enough to be considered a different entity. Now these are semi-sedentary populations uh, and you know there's not agricultural yet but they may have been the first uh, to found like these early Neolithic settlements. Um, it's up for debate but it is they're one of the contenders. Uh, they're also starting to play at agriculture not you know not directing it specifically but probably indirectly affecting what they're harvesting basically whether they know it or not they are molding how these crops are evolving and uh, plants for those that aren't aware are very easy to change over time you can you can get a lot of evolution out of them through selective breeding and through even inselective breeding like if you're not you know if you're not necessarily aiming for a specific outcome, you can affect them a lot quicker than you could, say, an animal. Um, but they're they're really interested in cereal crops, specifically rye is grown in this region, wild rye. Um, that being said, um, again, they're starting to break down. We know that they hunted animals um, like gazelle. That's one of their big um, targets that they're going for. So they are uh, your typical hunter-gatherers, but again, we see them start to have semi-sedentary lifestyles. And they actually have very large mortars that they found, grinding stones, uh, things like that. Uh, in fact, most of their tools are still stone. Um, and again, we're at the pre-pottery Neolithic, so that it should be obvious, whereas other places they're, um, they're using a little bit more variety. Um, they probably are using things like reeds and, you know, rope and hemp, things like that, or similar to hemp, um, for some tools that we just don't have records of. Uh, and these sites, they're sites that are, I guess, considered Natufian, at least in this region at this time. They're mostly in, uh, Israel, uh, Palestine, uh, and then I think there are some even up into what is now Syria. Um, but they have a few different locations. They're widespread. Um, it's possible that these sites are actually, you know, used at different times by the same, again, smaller groups. They're, they're traveling a lot. So these actually could have been occupied by the same people, you know, different times of the year or different years. Um, and at the time, this area is kind of covered in like a woodland belt. There's oaks. Uh, so that would have been useful, especially since they are building their, their dwellings uh, with, of course, some wood. They would need wood for tools, things like that. Um, they're circular houses. Um, they don't have mud brick, but they did use dry stones as kind of foundations. 
and they found like post holes for you know uh, you know I guess the base for like their tents or their encampments so um yeah so there are you know there are quite a few of these places um and again the estimates have been between 100 to 150 people uh but there are some that are smaller and they 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 gave i guess the the size of these places they're estimated between small medium and large you know depending on you know i guess what area is covered by these these post holes so you're talking anywhere between 15 square meters to like a thousand square meters so not um not anything too too large uh, and they don't have any evidence at least as far as we found of like a, like a storage area or facility so everyone is still kind of keeping their things on them uh, now they have found a very interesting burial of one woman uh, with her with her grave goods um, she had I think red deer necklace uh, made of their teeth uh, she had some stones um, they had like little pendants and necklaces and earrings uh, just with a different bit of uh, bone so bones very important to their culture they do use paintings um, tortoise shell is another thing uh, and they have uh, I think uh, parts of a golden eagle leopard pelvis was found in one of their burials so they they have a they have a lot of different um skull and bone type artifacts that they are buried with so uh very very reliant on kind of an animal culture uh in addition to whatever kind of crops they're growing uh so again the tufian they're about to break down uh they are kind of the i guess or their predecessors are, um, or I'm sorry, their successors are in the running for uh, the first Neolithic builders. Um, and another group that is around at this time, or at least if they're not around now, they will be soon, is the Kiamian culture. Um, they kind of cover a very similar area and this might be slightly too early for them uh, they might not show up to another couple hundred years later they might kind of be considered i guess a successor because they are in the same general area but they might be considered a successor culture to the natufians um and they, they get their name from a site called el kaim uh, and that's kind of right around the banks of the dead sea and they are they're kind of named that for like their arrowhead points. Um, but again, we don't know for sure if they're even around at this point. Again, they may not form for another couple of hundred years, or maybe they are kind of the remnants of the Naltufian or a branch of the Naltufian, or you know, they may have been around the same time as the Naltufian, they just didn't have quite the footprint until the Naltufians broke apart or moved or, or whatever. Uh, so we have uh, the beginnings of the um, Kayamian culture. Uh, we have the Naltufian culture. Uh, and these, again, these are part of the general uh, Levantine corridor. 
they're not actually in Mesopotamia per se, um, but they are part of the pre-pottery, pre-pottery Neolithic, which is also included by the uh, upper part of Mesopotamia. So what you generally might see is that they have these older sites around the coast of the Mediterranean as maybe climate shifts or these cultures kind of maybe over over exploit the land they are moving to the north uh, west or I'm sorry northeast uh, and they're meeting up with these cultures around uh, upper Mesopotamia and they begin constructing um, these kind of large Neolithic stone sites um, and then from there uh, when these are eventually going to break down they disperse in different directions taking some of what they've probably learned or uh, developed in different directions at least that's a that's one theory um, but the main sites for the pre-pottery Neolithic there are a couple that we should probably get to one is uh, Jericho, or what is now Jericho. Um, that's, of course, the biblical Jericho. Uh, it is in the modern-day Palestine. And it is a very, very, very old city. It's, it's in the running for the oldest city in the world. Um, and, of course, that name uh, is the... I guess what it's come down to us from the Bible, at least in English. Uh, I believe that the uh, Arabic name for the location is Areha, and the actual Hebrew transcription is Iraho. Uh, but my pronunciation could be off. Uh, I think in the old or ancient Hebrew, the older version, it would be Yeriho, uh, and and that could actually come from a very old, uh, an older word from Canaanite, uh, which could be, uh, which would be um, re, or uh, ro, uh, which means fragrant. Um, but there are other theories for that. It could be, uh, it could be a word for a moon, like yare, yare, or the name of a, like a, which is a derivative of like a, of a god from Canaanite mythology. But, again, things are just kind of guesses. Uh, at at 10,000 BCE, that is not what this location is called. Um, at least, not that we're aware of. Again, toponyms, they can hang around for a while. So, it is possible that, you know, it could be directly related to the Canaanite, but it is also possible that, you know, the Canaanites didn't come there till you know, well after the site had been abandoned. And you'll see this a lot in Neolithic sites, especially in this region. There may be a couple of hundred years of occupation, and then maybe another couple of hundred years of uh, it being barren or empty. And then, you know, the climate shifts back, it recovers from over-exploitation, people move back in, and they, you know, they didn't, might not even know that they're living on top of an old uh, location. Uh, in fact, there's a term for this, um, a tell, 
which is just, it means mound in both Arabic and Hebrew. Essentially what would happen is a lot of these sites would be abandoned either um, due to natural disaster or, you know, as part of the nomadic moving process, uh, they would tear down their structures and anything that they didn't need to take with them, they would just kind of destroy or, or bury or whatever. And over time, you know, this would create different layers and it would build up over time, making a mound, hence the word tell. Uh, but uh, Jericho sees a lot of construction um, around the site and it, again, predates the invention of agriculture, or at least the quote-unquote invention of agriculture. Again, it's probably being experimented with uh, either directly or indirectly. Um, and uh, with Jericho, you know, where it's located, I think during the Younger Dryas, they've kind of determined that it was basically, you know, impossible to live in any one location in this region. However, there is kind of a spring or there was a spring in the area so it would be a very popular kind of camping ground for different groups in the region uh, probably again the Natufians and you know you'll see a lot of different microlithic tools in the area um, but uh, in the next 400 years or so from from 10,000 BCE um, the droughts and the cold from the Younger Dryas is going to start, is going to end basically. And it's going to make it possible for um, people in the region to stay. And it and this eventually leads to kind of year-round habitation and settlements. And this is actually probably a good place to stop for now. Um, this is almost uh, 40, well, it's over 40 minutes now, um, and it's getting a little late here, and I'm starting to ramble and lose the thread, I think. Um, but, so, I just want to kind of go over the highlights again of the pre-pottery Neolithic. This is probably covering a few different groups, um, and they are noted for having small, circular dwellings. Um, they are burying their dead actually under the floors of their buildings. And when they're leaving, um, they're actually uh, covering their dead even more further. And of course, when they shift to a permanent settlement, they are, you know, they're staying over their ancestors. They're, they're dead. Um, but, you know, burying people where you live, that kind of creates a very deep connection spiritually. Uh, and emotionally to where you're living. Uh, this is probably also going to be a factor in, you know, becoming sedentary. Uh, and, again, we're starting to see the cultivation of wild cereals. Um, and at Jericho, which, again, we're getting to the process of it becoming a permanent settlement, um, you see the evolution from the circular buildings um, being built just of, you know, less, um, you know, less permanent materials, you're actually going to start seeing clay and straw bricks. 
uh, and they're going to be created by you know drying in the sun, left to bake essentially, and then they're going to be plastering these together with a mud mortar, and that is going to be the beginning of kind of Neolithic sites, and that's going to happen within I think a couple of hundred years from 10,000 BC. Um, but um, so that's kind of the the western end of the pre-pottery Neolithic. I think next episode we're going to cover kind of the north and east, uh, and this is going to cover um, the beginnings of uh, Gobekli Tepe, which is another um, contender for oldest permanent settlement, and they have a lot of interesting carved stuff. Um, and I'll go over some of the, the more interesting art that was created uh, from this group next time. And then once we finish up with that, again, we're going we're gonna to travel um, east into uh, what is now Iran and then into um, India, Pakistan, that region. And then we'll, we'll go from there. Um, but I do want to thank everyone for listening. Apologies if I rambled a little and got a little off track. Uh, but this is this is my longest episode by far, a little over 45 minutes. Uh, I did notice some issues with the audio um, about halfway through my recording. Um, I bumped the, I basically created a separate track and bumped the 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 decibels on that. But once it mixed together, it shouldn't be an issue. You guys shouldn't be able to tell. Um, but if you do notice any issues, please let me know, uh, and I'll try to get that fixed. I'll, I'll save the file uh, in a couple different locations just in case. Um, please, if you have any feedback, constructive or just general feedback, uh, please reach out to me at waradrevpod at gmail.com. You can also reach me at the Twitter account, which I will include a link to in the episode descriptions. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Um, I, I, I am surprised that this is growing so quickly. It's not a huge, huge number of people, but um, over the last 30 days, I've seen um, quite a steady amount of growth, which is which is nice. Uh, <laughs> it's nice to know that people find my ramblings a little, a little interesting at the very least. Um, but yeah, I appreciate it, everyone, and I hope you continue to listen and enjoy. But uh, thank you, and you guys all have a wonderful rest of your day. Goodbye.